Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Sober Truth Podcast. I want to thank you for tuning in and invite you to check out our Sober Truth Project YouTube channel for more content on recovery, life, and faith. Today on the show, an inspiring and insightful message on how depression has impacted this young man's life and what works for him moving forward. I'd like to welcome to the show, Joey Papa. You know, we've been having a lot of discussions about mental health, and uh, we did a live for, uh, broadcast on suicide prevention. Um, and so I, you know, hey, let's get together and do another, just sit down, but let's make this one a little bit more formal. And we picked the topic of depression. And first off, why did you pick depression? Uh, depression has been something that I've dealt with since I can remember. Uh, I know a lot of people experience it, you know, maybe at a different point in their life. But I, as far back as I can remember my childhood, I've always had um, depressive episodes, didn't know what they were then, and thought everyone in the world felt the way that I <laughs> did, you know, until I was probably in my mid-30s, so maybe like seven or eight years ago, started to realize that it was abnormal the way that I would that I was feeling. Um, I'm someone with high-functioning depression, so I don't think most people would recognize that I and you know constantly battling or coping with depression um but it is it's an ongoing every day you know sometimes i get really mentally exhausted from the constant uphill climb and the effort it takes to live a quote-unquote normal life while inside yeah. i feel just completely obliterated you know yeah yeah what would it you know what would an episode look like when you were a kid uh just tremendous amount of self-hatred uh huge desire to die uh and there was nothing distinctive distinctively traumatic about my childhood i mean i was bullied in junior high for extended amount of years but aside from that there was never any like abuse of any sort or anything like that but um just had a pr propensity towards feeling really uh dark you know okay. down uh always very critical of myself um, lots of negative thinking, you know, yeah. and uh, lots of fear mm -hmm. uh, around other people and not knowing how to act and stuff like that, which I guess bleeds into anxiety, but just really a lot of self-hatred and negative self-talk. Which is really interesting. I'm glad we jumped right into the, uh, I don't know about controversial, but the unknown side of it. So I think that most people think of depression that is not where they go. They would usually go with uh, sad. Yeah. Okay. But they don't even realize that, no, depression is so much more than just being sad. And yeah. often when you're sad, you're not actually depressed. Correct. So there's actually this variation that most people don't understand. And yeah. unfortunately, um, I think just the term depression is one of these that's uh, thrown around so much in society that it loses its actual value. For sure. Um, oh, I'm depressed. Oh, I'm depressed. It's like um, everyone's depressed. Everyone has ADHD. <laughs> Everyone, you know, is OCD. It's like everyone's all these different labels, except for, um, you know, those that actually are. Yeah. So uh, how did you really come to the determination about self-hatred and the way you felt about yourself being depression? Um. Well, like I said, it was just chronic. It was all the time, every morning. I think it was when I started seeing a doctor mm -hmm. and explaining to him what my daily life looked like. 
uh, he had then he like gave me that depression questionnaire and I was like <laughs> off the charts. I'm right, like, right. Yeah, here I am. Yeah. Uh, that's when it really started to click. I think the more that I talked to other people as well about the way that I would feel like every morning when I woke up every morning, I was in the lowest place possible um, mentally. And throughout the day, I would slowly climb myself out of that depressive slump. And by the end of the day, I started feeling somewhat okay. Mm-hmm. And then I would be afraid to fall asleep because I knew I had to wake up the next day and do the same thing. So when I was explaining that to my doctor, he's like, yeah, that is not what we would consider normal. And I was like, oh, I really thought everyone woke up in this like horrible state of mind every day. Um, You know, that, you know, a lot of people who deal Mm -hmm. with anything, even physical ailments, they you'll hear them say, I thought everyone was like this until they realized that they're not, you know. Uh, So, yeah. And I think your point about sadness and depression is really important because, like you said, everyone says, oh, I'm depressed. Uh, I always say sadness is an emotion. Depression is like a state of mind Mm -hmm. and depression is chronic. It doesn't just like you don't you're not depressed for two weeks and then you're fine for the rest of the year. Right. Um, And I would say the closest thing that people could probably get to depression who don't deal with it chronic chronically is if you ever have lost a loved one. Mm -hmm. Um, That state of mind that you're in of grief is very similar to depression. But with depression, there isn't there isn't an event that happened that caused that depressive state of mind. Right. You know, it's just right. kind of like random and has no real logical sense right. to it. You know, so many times people ask me, oh, why are you depressed? I have no idea. Like, it's just always been that way for me. Yeah. Um, so you're, you, how old are you now? Uh, 42. So when you were going through your depression early on, I'm trying to think back, um, was it 90s, I guess, right? Somewhere in there? Yeah, late 80s. Okay, so what about medication? 90s was sort of the decade of Prozac. Um, What was, you know, your doctor's outlook on on medication, things like that as a a kid? Well, I concealed my depression really well from other people. Uh, I didn't want to scare my parents. I didn't want to scare my friends. And so I did a great job at masking it and hiding Mm -hmm. it. So I never talked to really anyone you know, about it until I was in my mid thirties when I was having a really hard time after I lost my daughter. Um, and I couldn't get myself out of that. It became way more apparent. I wasn't able to fake Mm -hmm. it or put the mask on. Um, and obviously I was in grief, but through that grieving process, that's when I started to have these, these self realizing moments of, uh, I kind of feel like this all the time, except mm-hmm. right now because of this life event, it's just making it more obvious to other people. Right. But not much has changed in me in- internally, mm-hmm. you know? So I think as a child, like I said, no one really knew. My parents didn't know. Even now my parents, when they hear me talk about it as an adult, they're like flabbergasted. Because sure. They're like, you were such a happy kid. You were always mm-hmm. so carefree and hyper and you know, loved living and life and all the stuff. And I'm like, yeah, that's how it looked like on the outside. But in inside, I was dying inside. Yeah. You know, that I think um, we become masters of, you know, just kind of putting on the illusion that that we're okay. Yeah. Or or we rebel and turn to other things. So um, I turned to drugs and alcohol, sex um, and at a destructive level right away. How did you avoid that? Uh, religion was my drug. Oh. So I... Here we go. Interesting topic. Oh, God. I clamped down <laughs> and gave... I was a zealot in junior <laughs> high and high school, uh, even starting into college. I just 
my whole identity was wrapped up in my religion and I was able to hide really, really well behind that. Um, and I, you know, I'm a Christian. I love God. I love Jesus. And, you know, my dedication to him and his dedication to me has always remained intact, but I definitely was proselytizing my faith at the time. Okay. Obviously I didn't know. I was like, yeah. it was a coping mechanism. It was a knee jerk reaction. Like find something to escape, find something mm-hmm. to make it look like I'm doing fine. And so I became hyper spiritual, even so much so that I think I scared people away because I put out this persona of, right. you know, I'm this ultra Christian guy. Okay. You know? And so people then assume yeah. he's got his stuff together. He's good, you know, whatever. And that was my place that I could hide really well. Hiding in the church. Hiding in the church. Wow. I bet nobody does that these days. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Not much has changed. So I'm trying to picture a young Joey. Was young Joey, yeah. did you like button your top all the way to the top? And <laughs> Oh, wait, that's Mormons. I yeah. am so sorry. Uh, depends on when you met me. <laughs> I went through multiple phases, as most people do as a teenager. But I did go through this, like, dressing to the nines phase in high school. And then I, like rebelled against it and became like a skater kid you know i was totally into like punk rock and emo and yeah. you know it, that felt more fitting for me than wearing the <laughs> yeah. button-up shirt so i kind of gave that up pretty early in my teenage pretty years. early yeah. so um you know so you kind of get through the teenage years you go to college all that right um when did you figure out that things were not the way you thought they were in church uh, probably when I started going, when I went to college, I went to a Christian university, but it was interdenominational. So I started meeting people of all different, uh, I call them flavors of Christianity. And they were very different than what I was raised in. I was raised in a very uh, fundamentalist, Pentecostal, you know, evangelical type church. And so I, there was a lot of judgment seated mm-hmm. in my heart through my upbringing towards even other people in my faith that didn't, you know, weren't raised the same way I was. And I'd meet these people, and they just had a sense of inner peace and a joy, and they're very <laughs> loving. And I was like, something isn't right here right. With, with what I have been believing. And that was the beginning of me realizing I'm hiding behind a lot of this stuff. A lot of this is is manufactured by me. Right. Um, and that's when I really started questioning a lot, like, of who God is, who am I, you know, everything I've ever been taught about Jesus, like what's legit and all that. So there was a huge unpacking time in college that happened. And um, I'd say all through all the great tragedies of my life is when I really find God's grace to be very tangible. Mm -hmm. So every time I've gone through something difficult, I always get a fresh vision of who he really is and his kindness and his goodness and how merciful he is, you know? Right. Um, So, as difficult as life has been at times for me, I'm also grateful for those opportunities to have that because there's no, nothing greater than, sure. you know, having that understanding or that revelation that is real to you. Yeah. 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 I think it, um, you know, becomes God becomes real when, you know, there's nothing in your life that really points to you believing he should be real. Yeah. But you still hang on to it. Yep. So, that is um 
is a hard place to be. And a lot of people don't necessarily make it through that place, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, so, you know, growing up in a Pentecostal, you know, atmosphere and just from what I know of Pentecostal holiness movements, a lot of times, you know, name it and claim it. I don't know if that was the background, but mm. was it so much, you know, one of those things that it was taboo to even consider saying you were depressed? Yeah, oh, for sure. I think if I had told people honestly how I was feeling, I probably would have been demons invited out. to an exorcism. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There was some demons would have been cast out. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just Which obviously, you know, caused me to hide more, pull back more put sure. up this front that I'm good. I have it all together. No demons here. Me and Jesus Nothing to see. chilling, you know, <laughs> like just kind of ridiculous. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When did you meet your wife? Um, we met in 2002. We actually met on going on a mission trip to Australia. Um, I was the leader over the trip and she was one of the team leaders. That's when we originally met. Okay. So, you know, obviously, you know, you, you mentioned a little while ago, um, you're, you know, when you lost your daughter and um, how hard that was. But, you know, just kind of take us through um, your journey as an adult um, with depression and, you know, what it looked like once you got out of college and started getting married and, and life. Yeah. Well, I think getting married was very surprising to me. I mean, it triggered every childhood uh, memory and negative feeling. And so I actually was probably more depressed once I got married just because now I'm in this relational dynamic. Uh, anytime there was a disagreement or an argument, I would always carry the weight of that, blame myself, beat myself up, not realizing that, you know, conflict is a healthy thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to have in a relationship. But I would, I think I had an idealistic understanding of what marriage and all that should look like. And that never added up to me yeah. in reality. Um, so but once we started having kids, I really like bucked up and kind of got myself out of that visual, like people knowing that I was depressed and kind of went back into the hiding mm -hmm. state of mind, not so much to try to trick people, but out of a survival technique to really be there for my kids, to be there for my wife and to try to like make life work. Yeah. Um, so I'd say for the majority of my marriage, that is in my adult life, that's kind of what I was operating in um, and a sense of lack of self-awareness like I didn't really know that I was depressed right you know I still didn't have the language I still didn't have the knowledge and understanding to know that what I was dealing with all the time was actually you know a mental health issue sure and you know I think we just get so used our behavior as you know hiding just becomes so second nature yeah that it's almost impossible to recognize what's real and what's not anymore yeah, yeah. and I think for a lot of people who yeah. do what mental health stuff you don't want to tell people one because it's mentally exhausting to try to explain to someone what you experience right uh it's hard enough for you to reconcile with it then to try to like get someone to catch up to your life history and your story mm -hmm. uh two there's a lot of shame around dealing with anything emotionally for a long long period of time uh, right. i think society in society it could be perceived as weak weakness or something is really wrong with you and all that stuff just so much easier right. to deal with it on your own although it's not it's not healthy to do that but it's easier to just suck it up and move on in life and I did that for a long time it wasn't until uh, my marriage fell apart my son got diagnosed with leukemia and 2020 hit 
which was a financial hell for us. For, yeah. Um, that that's when I tanked. I mean, that's when I had the lowest point of my life. Uh, ended up becoming suicidal. Was hospitalized for it. Um, and it was a very long journey to get myself back to feeling semi-normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that depression was horrible. Sure. Now, when, how many years ago was it that your daughter passed? She passed in 2015, so almost seven years. And was it really after that that it became harder and harder to maintain? Uh, yeah, I would definitely say so. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, I think it, What's interesting to me, I think, is when we have this life situation, I don't know, for me, it's almost like something just happens where you just don't, it's not even worth it to try to hide it anymore. Where the pain of what's happened is so much greater than the illusion of people not seeing me broken. It's just, it don't even matter. I'm just, whatever. Right? Yes, I went through that big phase when I was in that depression of like F it. Like I was just right. like, screw it. I don't care who thinks what about me. And there's a sense of freedom in that because when you've lived so long trying to stay face mm-hmm. and then you finally give yourself permission to let it all go, you're just like, I just don't care anymore. I don't care. You know, the judgments, let them sure. come. Yeah. Whatever. All these years, people who have known me in the church and now I'm like up in a mental hospital, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I was like, well, it is what it is. Take it or leave it. Well, I, you know, I think in a way that is, you know, this um, breakthrough that even us in recovery have where we try so hard to hold on to the image that we're not addicts. Yeah. Right. And then until finally the wheels just come off so bad that you're just like, no, you are. Yeah. And, and so we enter into recovery and there's almost this freedom that comes from. I can now just be me, the broken me, of course, but at least I don't have to put on this facade any longer. And it's literally the same thing where we become so addicted to um, the way that we present ourselves to the world, um, that almost has to break. It's almost like you have to hit you know, rock bottom yep. to finally realize that person you've pretended to be for so long, you're addicted to that. And it needs to go away yeah. or you're never going to find peace. Yep. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's no way to have peace inside yourself when you are not being authentic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always kind of at odds with yourself inside because you know that what you're showing the world isn't exactly mm-hmm. what's going on sure. inside, you know, so there's like a dissonance there. Right. So we're sort of walking through this journey for a reason. It's um, we're seeing you know, the different things that need to change inside of a society to be better equipped to walk with people through depression. So just looking at your journey, we see, you know, the, 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 the kid who, um, basically doesn't want to have to tell his parents or his church because he doesn't want to let them down, doesn't want to freak them out. Um, so that's sort of this not comfortable with sharing truth. Um, you know, then you enter into, you know, the second phase of life and, you know, that gets even harder because now you're married and you feel like I have to be the strength in this family. I have to be the one that, you know, handles everything. So sort of, you know, society dictates this is who the man is. And so you have to be that. 
Uh, oh, also, your marriage has to be like this. So no troubles. You walk through conflict if you have any, you know, all that. Yeah. So it's almost like here's the image of what you're supposed to be like. And so you're faced, you know, the person struggling is faced with that. And it goes both ways, by the way. So, you know, the, the society dictates that the, the wife is the perfect woman who doesn't have any issues because her husband is out there working and she should be grateful. Right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is so mid-century. Anyways, <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the truth is, it's like that's part of, of the problem. And then, you know, we, we get to um, where, you know, sort of where you're at now, where it finally it takes a traumatic event to happen that finally makes you realize I don't even have the strength to do any of that stuff anymore. Now, we look at it from that perspective, what do we need to do differently in society um, to make a difference? Well, I think anything, any change that happens on a uh, collective level really does begin with each individual. Um, and I think compassion and empathy are probably two of the strongest weapons we have mm -hmm. to combat a lot of this uh, mental health upheaval, especially since the pandemic has started. I mean, everything is just off the charts now, you know, even addiction, mm -hmm. um, depression, anxiety, all of those things. Uh, and I think learning to be compassionate first with ourselves and understanding towards ourselves will, uh, by nature, cause us to be that way with other people. Mm -hmm. um, and really just accepting that I'm not going to understand. Like I, if I talk to someone who suffers with OCD or schizophrenia, like I don't have any context for that in my personal life. So I'm not going to understand fully, mm -hmm. but I don't have to understand in order to have compassion or to, to be empathetic um, towards someone else in their journey, you know, towards better mental health or whatever it may be, coping skills mm -hmm. and all that stuff. Um, and I think the conversation is, it's getting more and more attention on every level. And um, hopefully people will begin to see that there's probably a lot more people dealing with mental health than we know. Mm -hmm. Because someone like me, you know, you wouldn't, right. you wouldn't think that. Sure. Um, so I, I think it's the recognition of being compassionate, but also that we don't know everyone's story. We don't really know what's going on inside of one another. Right and being kind and slow and all that type of stuff when we're dealing with people. What about, you know, any advice for parents that, you know, what advice would this Joey give to his parents when you were a kid? Uh, I think I was always just looking for the intangible, emotional safety um, of my parents and or leadership, mm -hmm. you know, in my church or even school or whatever. Uh, so with my kids, even though I fail every day at being a great person or a great dad, um, they too deal with their own mental stuff. My son went through leukemia, so he went through a major depression, like yeah. wanting to not live anymore and all that. Two of my daughters definitely are very anxious kids. Um, and so I just try to come alongside of them and not draw more attention to it, but try to be a presence of safety and peace for mm -hmm. them so that they feel free to talk to me because i think that's the one of my biggest goals with my kids is that they feel that sense of freedom to talk to me about anything mm -hmm. uh, without me having to pry or push or you know manipulate or contrive the conversation right and they have surprisingly not not i'm sure they don't 
haven't told me everything, but there have mm-hmm. been some major <laughs> things that they've told me Whoa. that I'm like, yeah. inside I'm going, holy shit. But on yeah. the outside, I'm yeah. like, oh, okay. Well, how did that go? You know, like yeah. <laughs> trying to hold it together. Um, so that's what I would have. That's what little Joey probably was looking for and wanted because I, I wanted to share mm-hmm. where I was at. I'm a very like connected person. Like I love to connect with other people, but I just never felt that level of welcome or safety there, you know. You know, it's interesting um, in the book from uh, Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey, What Happened to You, mm. um, they say it like this. It's um, engagement. Yeah. So actually being engaged with your children, engaged with their lives, their day-to-day lives, not just, you know, surface level, how was your day, but actually engaged, knowing what's happening questioning that which is not you know in hindsight logical right it's like i had zero problems so it's like is it logical that i have zero problems so it's almost like you know we want to walk around in ignorance where well no the kid's fine you know it's like no the kid's not fine but that takes being engaged on you know a deeper level yeah and i think engagement with kids even all the way up until their preteen years comes through play Right. Um, or doing things with them that they enjoy because then they feel connected to mm-hmm. you. I was reading a study about that, that when, you know, kids play with their parents, they feel loved. And that seems so obvious, but I didn't ever, I right. never thought of it that way. And yeah. I was like, oh, so I actually told my kids that. And they're like, duh, dad, like, how don't you know that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just never thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, my two girls right now, they're really into Full House, the original one, like in the 80s. Uh, watching it on Hulu and so like I watch it with them religiously I play baby dolls with my seven-year-old you know uh, right try to have fun with them and play and it's crazy the stuff that comes out of their mouth when you're in that play space with them right because they feel comfortable you know I I think it's ignorant of us as parents to think our kids are just going to come to us and tell us Mm -hmm. everything you know we're about our business they're about their business like there's no invitation yeah for them to share what's going on in their hearts sure Yeah, it's actually, you know, it's funny you say that because that's actually play is how counseling with children happens. Mm -hmm. Counselors play with the children and and that's how they get them to actually talk. So it's how does like counseling go with a six year old? Well, you don't sit there and have a discussion with the six year old. How did you really feel? How do you really feel? (laughs) Right. So, uh, yeah, it's through play. And, uh, you know, that's really just this deepest form of engagement and you know, and it, it probably doesn't even have an expiration date. It's probably one of those things that you can just, yeah. you just keep doing. So, so tell us about now. So, you know, you, you get up to, you know, a few years back, you understand, you know, the depression that you're having. What did you do from there? Man, it was just, well, one, not giving up. Mm-hmm. Um, once I was hospitalized, I got off of certain medication that was really exasperating the suicidal ideation. It took me about a year, I would say, to recover. Um, and in that year, it was like a lot of laying in my bed, uh, a lot of feeling absolutely numbed out to myself, the world. Because when I hit that bottom, I I have always cared immensely about being a good dad, a good husband, all that. I didn't care about any of it. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I don't care if I lose everything. I don't care if I de- declare bankruptcy. I don't care if I'm a good dad, all of that. So I really was at a low point. It took me about a year. And what got me through that one was friends that I could be completely transparent and open with. Um, that actually gave me a lot of strength. And that also gave me hope to keep going 
um, and then celebrating little victories. And what I mean by that is, to put that in context, was I would tell myself, if you get out of bed today and brush your teeth and shower, yeah, you've done a lot. And I would do that, and I would force myself to get out of bed and do those things, and then I would celebrate with myself. You did it. Good job. You know. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we're looking for a way to get from A to Z in a quick amount of time, but when you're in a depression, mm-hmm. it has to be the small things because those small things are like, you know, immense mountains in front of you that you have to overcome, like washing your clothes or doing the dishes. I mean, nominal everyday things you just don't even care about. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the small steps, small victories. I started writing goals for myself. And again, these goals were like pretty pitiful, not like, Oh, I want to make 300,000 grand next year. No, not those goals. Like, (laughs) you know, I'm going to actually interact with my children today. That was a goal. Um, so that was another thing, but I still feel like I'm recovering from sure. that. Um, yeah. I think my marriage falling apart, I would say is the greatest tragedy of my life. Um, even more than losing my daughter. I never in a million years thought that my marriage would end. Um, and so that was too much for my mind to comprehend. Um, and I still think I'm recovering from that. I still have days where I just want to lay in bed all day Sure. and don't want to live. I don't want to do anything. I just want to stop existing. Yeah, I think, you know, this is where it brings into question. Um, we have depression that some people um, just naturally have. Yeah. They um, chemically have it. It's, an, you know, it's actually something occurring um, inside of them. And then there's depression that is brought on by traumatic events. Yep. And, you know... When we think of, when we realize this, we, we need to realize that trauma is often handled differently than depression is handled. So it, it's almost like understanding, your, for example, your son, it's like he's depressed. Well, he just had leukemia. So there's a traumatic event yep. that his body, you know. when I got hospitalized in my life like it was basically it was familiar but it was probably 10 times more intense Mm -hmm. than what I had felt before Um, and so yeah definitely exasperated it it's almost like when you get hit by a car you know you don't get healed within a day or even a week like it is a long road to recovery through you know physical therapy and whatever has to be healed in your body and that's I kind of feel like I'll be walking with a limp for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. uh, because of the divorce and all that other stuff. Uh, It's definitely made a permanent mark on me that I'm sure will get better and better, but I don't think it'll ever be fully gone. It's the same thing with my daughter losing her. It's the same, you know, you don't get over losing a child. That just doesn't happen. Well, and, you know, and, and almost in a way, 
it, it doesn't have to, you know, maybe it's not even supposed to. So, um, I think that, you know, the Bible, um, has some verses that get misapplied and it actually hurts more people than it helps. But one of them is God does all things to, you know, to good for those who love him. Um, so don't worry, God's doing this to you for his good. It's like, yeah. well, I don't know if the creator of the universe needs to have me go through a divorce and a child dying to suit his purposes. Yeah, I, That's a little wrong in my opinion, but it happened and he can take that and use it and use it. Yeah. And I think, you know, just my, our friendship with, which is just now budding is, is in my opinion, it seems like that's what's happening. So you're going into counseling, not seeing a counselor, but going to counseling to become one. Yeah. So tell us that journey. Yeah. I mean, I really, when I got hospitalized, I have always been fascinated by mental health, but being around people who were hospitalized or committed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with mental health issues, I fell in love with that community, just being around people. I think I said this the last time too, of like, you know, talking to aliens and people who were schizophrenic or hearing and seeing things. I just feel very comfortable around that community because mm -hmm. I feel like they're not hiding anything. Like everything is seen for what it is. There's like an authenticity there. So when I got out of the hospital and I started slowly recovering, I uh, was like, man, I would just love to work in the mental health world. And obviously being a therapist would be the most direct way. Yeah. So that's what kind of brought me to that place. And I just, I love bringing understanding and comfort to people especially that feel misunderstood and feel like no one gets them or, you know, anything along those lines. So that's what really drove me mm -hmm. to go to school to become a therapist. Um, I would love to be known as the therapist for people who hate therapists. It's kind of <laughs> like my target because usually those people have had a really bad experience with a therapist, right. but they actually really need therapy. Yeah. You know, like they're avoiding it yeah. at all costs, but it would, they would benefit a lot from having a therapist that they click with, that they feel good with, you know, to help them through a lot of their emotional mm -hmm. stuff. So, um, what are some, what's some of the things that have helped you through your stuff that are non, um, well, you know, nonconformist basically. So what are some of the avenues you've approached to get mental health? Uh, okay. The basis of everything for me is relationship. So having and maintaining close, intimate, friendships mm -hmm. that I can be honest with, that I can fall apart, uh, tell them I feel like I want to die, you know, those types of things and are not shocked by it or like have a weird reaction. That's the number one tool for me. Um, number two is my diet and exercise. I heard it a million times, yeah. you know, but I used to be a committed runner. Uh, for most of my adult life, when I went through that depression, I couldn't get out of that bed. Like, oh. and I would I would go try to go for a run. I would stop like a quarter of a mile into it and walk back home and fall into my bed. Like I just could not get myself physically to do it. So once I got to a healthy enough place, then I started going to the gym again and uh, eat plant-based. And those two things really helped me a lot. Wow. Yeah, a lot. Um, when I feel anxious, the best way to get through that anxiety is to work out because uh, you're able to move that energy through and out you and you know obviously you get a dopamine hit i mean there's lots of sure feel good hormones that come with exercise yeah. um, i do use a lot of supplements as well journaling um, journaling to me has always been like written prayer mm -hmm. so usually when i journal i'm like 
pouring my heart out to God on the paper. Yeah. Uh, and I think something about writing, there's something unique about it to get it out of your mind that's different than even speaking it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that has always worked really well for me. Um, yeah, I think just remaining committed to be honest and authentic is the biggest help for me because there's a paranoia that comes along with when you begin to retreat inward, you begin to isolate, uh, you can start to feel very paranoid, like you're mm -hmm. completely alone. No one understands you. No one knows what's going on inside of this head. And right. that starts to create more anxiety and more mm -hmm. panic and fear. So I've learned to do the opposite of that, which is right. to not retreat. Even when I feel like it, text my friends. I feel like I just want to isolate myself. I want no one to call me or talk to me. Right. You know, and they know me enough to know that I'm actually reaching out for help. I'm not saying like, screw you, don't talk yeah, to right, me. Yeah, right, know? right, right. Um, so I wouldn't try that with everyone, but people who actually know <laughs> me uh, know that when I'm in that place. Right. Those are probably the key things that have helped stabilize me and move me forward in my mental health uh, as a whole. I've really been interested in ketamine treatments okay. administered by a doctor. Let's go there. Let's talk about it. What yeah. do you know? Uh, well, psychedelics in general seem to be under a doctor's care, very effective at treating mm -hmm. uh, resistant depression. So yeah. even though I'm on Lexapro, Lexapro helped me a lot with my anxiety. Um, I don't know if it's really touched my depression and I've been on six or seven different antidepressants. None of them have really helped me. So I'd be a prime candidate to try ketamine. Um, you know, I called the place up in Tampa and, you know, she's all about helping me and treating me, but it's costly. Um, it's six treatments. Yeah. Um, and, but I mean, just the, the data and the research on it is pretty uncanny. Like it can not cure depression, but really help you along it does do a lot i had um one of the men that i work with i uh, went through the treatment um he has ptsd and um depression that it, it came from that and it really did help him yeah um and i think it's a really interesting approach um what about ayahuasca no i don't think i would do that <laughs> i would definitely do psilocybin oh well oh, wow now one but not the other no. why I've watched documentaries on it, and it, it kind of freaks me out, like the process that you go through when you're. Oh, ingesting. you mean the whole the uh, oh, what happens to the body or yeah, the whole like yeah. people puke and it's like a six-hour ordeal. I'm like, hmm, probably not for me. But uh, psilocybin's also being studied. I think psychedelics are the next wave of treatment for anxiety and depression, probably in the next ten years. Obviously, they're all in clinical trials right now. Some doctors are administering them under those clinical trials and they are seeing incredible success. So mm -hmm. from what I understand, psychedelics have a way of accessing both sides of the brain Absolutely. and allowing them to connect and communicate, which actually helps to resolve trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in normal, traditional um, antidepressants, you're it's like taking Tylenol, you're kind of masking the problem by forcing your brain to produce more serotonin or dopamine or you know all these other neurotransmitters, not really helping the brain to resolve right. issues, but with, with these psychedelics, from what I understood, they help the brain to actually resolve it. So you actually are getting to the root cause, yep. you know, it's not just like about getting high or having a trip or anything like that. It's, it's used for medical purposes. Yeah. I think, um, you know, anybody who knows me knows that I am <clears throat> adamantly against the war on drugs. I think it's done way more harm than anything good. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was, 
don't get me started on my theories because <laughs> people will tune me out forever. But let's just say I think it was um, an evil thing right from the start. So yeah, counterproductive for sure. Well, counterproductive for sure, but I uh, outright evil. Hmm. Um, anyways, but you know, one of the casualties of that is the psilocybin treatment. The you know, the treatment that they were doing on on those types of drugs were a casualty of that war. Yep. And unfortunately, that has prevented mental health from, you know, achieving who knows what it could have achieved. Because unfortunately, the way that the policies are written around the war on drugs is that we demanded that every other country follow our procedures. Mm -hmm. So we had our war on drugs but we forced every other country to do the same thing. Otherwise, we would um, levy, levy tax, you know, tariffs against them. It's so the that, American way, man. It's the American, the American way, way, man. It's not America, Our baby. way or no way. Our it's our world, American world. So no other country was allowed to study this type of medication either. Yeah. And it has hurt us tremendously because I believe, you're right, that the future is in, in those studies. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I learned that LSD was created in a medical lab for mm -hmm. medical purposes. Yeah. And then once it leaked out onto the streets, it got this horrible rap and now it, you know, got taken yeah, away. Yeah, Timothy and, Weary. Yeah. And now they're starting to bring it back. At Harvard University. These, it's crazy, man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you think of, you know, the treatment for, you know, cancer patients that are about to die that are in their final stages and you're going to you know, take them away from the ability to have, you know, those moments with their loved ones, you know, that can be provided by so many treatments that because of the war on drugs, we're not allowing yeah. people to have. Yep. I think that's all starting to get undone. It is. It is. To a large degree. I mean, there's been so many people who have come out mm -hmm. publicly and said exactly what you're saying. People that are in the medical and the psychiatric yeah. world that are pushing to get those laws overturned. Obviously, this whole marijuana situation is proving that, you know, there's tons of medical benefits from it, but no one could ever study it because it was a schedule one. You know? Yeah. And here's the thing. Let me just say it this way. So, OK, I am in recovery. And so, yeah, a lot of people that listen to me or follow me or they're like, oh, how could you say these things? It's like, listen, those of us that are in recovery we still are in recovery so we can't just go do all these yeah, things yeah. but here's what we don't know what people don't realize is that if you took a hundred percent of the people that try drugs and alcohol only 10 to 8 percent of them become addicts so we tend to look at drugs and alcohol and say they're all bad mm -hmm. because of that 10 or 8 percent of us that really screwed it up for the rest of y'all yeah but that's not actually, you know, what it's, I, I'm not saying that all this should be legal, maybe, maybe not, but there, you know, there's plenty of proof that there's people that could go and snort a few lines of cocaine on a weekend and, and then do it maybe one other time the rest of the year and maybe not again for a couple of years and be totally fine during that time and productive members of society and whatever. So, but we tend to like look at these policies and say, no, they're going to be for everybody. Yeah. And that just totally presents um, something that's not actually correct. And unfortunately, the stereotypes around all things now are based upon the worst of us. And yet, you know, we're preventing the healing for the rest of it. Yeah. Right. And so it's almost like, you know, when we look at 
you know, the the problem with opiates and the way that, you know, they were so mishandled. But the truth is, opiates are some of the greatest antidepressants out there. That's part of the problem. Yeah. Because they weren't labeled, they weren't handled right, they weren't, you know, prescribed right and all of that. And so now it's totally classified in an area that doesn't need to be and it's preventing people from getting the help that they need. Yeah. yeah it's very complicated. Oh, yeah. As I said, don't get me started. <laughs> so what about this other thing you try? Uh, you do it, you know, what? Um, not the Kava, but the... Kratom? Kratom. Oh, yeah, Tell us man. about it. Kratom, man. I'm on it. I'm all about it. Kratom <laughs> is it. a natural plant. It's an herb, cousin to the coffee shrub. Mm-hmm. So it's in the same family as coffee. Um, and people in, the, in Southeastern Asia have used it for thousands of years. They mm-hmm. just take the leaves of the tree. And it has unique alkaloids in it um, that interact with your brain chemistry or whatever. Uh, it it is the best natural alternative that I have found for my depression and anxiety. It's a very unique uh, substance because it it not only gives you this like incredible mood lift, so that helps with my depression. It also makes me feel very motivated and focused. But a lot of things that do that are stimulants, and they actually exasperate anxiety Mm -hmm. but with this like if i drink too much coffee my anxiety like is off the roof but with kratom when taken properly it not only lifts the mood but it decreases my anxiety so it's like a sense of calm um that i get from it and i take it every day um like i said it's just a leaf of a plant that gets crushed up and people take it in a powder form or sometimes in capsules uh and it has been very effective if you get it at helping people to get off of opioids and other narcotics mm-hmm. um, because it it is an antagonist to your opioid receptors. So it helps with withdrawals um, and getting people off of the hard stuff. Right. Uh, people also use it for pain management. A lot of people use it for PTSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has a lot of really cool benefits. Um, obviously, the federal government doesn't like it, and there's always like <laughs> a thing with it. Some dude back in the 60s tried to patent the alkaloids that are in Kratom. And when it got to the Supreme Court, it was it, it, the decision was made, and this actually became a policy, a law, that any plant or anything that is 100% naturally occurring cannot be patented. So he wanted to take oh, yeah, the alkaloids mm-hmm. and make a medication, you know, basically sell it as a med off of it. Now he's the biggest anti-Kratom advocate out there. Really? Yeah, he got butt hurt, and he's bitter and probably just a greedy SOB. So he's like, <laughs> does not like Kratom, wants it to be banned and all that. But it's legal in most of the states. I think it's maybe illegal or banned in four or five states. Um, but yeah, it's legal. You have to be 21 to buy it. Uh, but to me, it has had no negative side mm-hmm. effects. I mean, it can give you constipation, you know, if you're not eating in a fiber, but that's about it. Okay, that's a public <laughs> service message for you. <laughs> but yeah, I have my, on my YouTube channel, I have quite a few videos about it and there's a really cool kratom community of a lot of people that are dealing with mental health or chronic pain um former or addicts you know that are getting clean and sober and stuff like that where's your youtube channel uh it's youtube uh joey talks is is the name of the channel cool yeah youtube check it out check it out yes i talk about all things mental health not just kratom but if you want to learn more about kratom it's on there as well (laughs) you can go there as well so uh what do you have advice wise for someone who might be struggling right now 
aside from try and create him. Uh, yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to find a trusted person. That's the number one step for, for me that has been a game changer. Um, there is nothing more freeing in this life that I have found than sitting with someone that you know loves you, that is committed to your well-being, and you can fully expose all of the crap in your life and still be accepted, loved, and cared for. Um, obviously, it's a two-way street in any relationship, but finding that person. And for people, I tell people all the time, if you don't have anyone like that in your life, A, it's very risky and takes a lot of courage to right. go there with people. But if you don't have that person, finding a, a licensed therapist or a mental health provider to be that person for you in the meantime, mm -hmm. you have to get whatever's going on inside of you out of you. Like to live with that is mental torment. You know? right. And so I think that's the first step, finding a person. Doesn't have to be a million people, just one person to do that. Um, and then to start doing some things that are proactive, like exercising. I, I hate when people say that. I hate that yeah. I'm even saying it because I know it so well. I mean, oh, exercise will really help your mental health. I'm like, I'll just shut up already. But, <laughs> but it does. It really, really does. It really does. Um, and, you know, I think I'm a big firm believer in getting your diet to help support your brain, help support, you know, your your physical body as well. And those things help too. Um, you know, being involved with the spiritual community, having a spiritual practice um, is vitally important, I think, as well for our emotional health right. too. So, um, Any advice to the person who's listening? Uh, really take that bold step to get whatever's going on inside of you out. Even if you are completely afraid and panicked to talk to someone else, write it out then. Yeah. Like there has to be a way to get it out of your head onto paper. I mean, blog about it, make a video, talk to a friend, whatever it is. Um, and that they're not alone. I think anyone who deals with mental health, you feel so odd. Yeah. Like you're the odd one out in the crowd. No right. one else understands. No one gets it, whatever. And to a large degree, that is true. A lot of people don't understand and don't get it. But you're not alone. Like there are right. so many people out there that are having a very similar struggle. Um, and I think the recognition of that is comforting in and of itself. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I think you're right on that. And I also think there is so many resources out there nowadays that, you know, we don't really have any excuse uh, to not learn more about this. Um, you know, there's other YouTube channels. There's all sorts of things to, to learn about mental health. So whether you're the person who's struggling or the person who's wondering if your friends are struggling, you know, there's there's ways around um sort of your lack of knowledge yeah to get the knowledge you need to actually make a difference yeah and i would say to listeners out there who don't deal with depression or anxiety or ptsd or any severe mental challenge learn to be a presence for the people in your life that are and what i mean by that is probably the worst thing you could say to someone who's dealing with depression is like what are you depressed about like, yeah, don't your say life that. is so good yeah, like yeah. you have four beautiful children you have a house you have this you're like uh, uh you're definitely not getting it i would definitely say it's more about being with someone than it is like what you're saying to them right right and the thing that has brought me the most comfort and my other my friends who also deal with some significant mental health challenges is learning to be present with someone doing things not making a bigger deal about the mental illness than it is um, because usually someone is carrying a level of shame. And yeah. so anytime you're like, you know, reacting or overreacting to something they're telling you, like if someone tells you, I want to kill myself, 
you know, the worst thing to do would be like, what did you say? You know, right, like, right, right. like being shocked by it. Even you may feel that way inside. Learn to not show that on the outside right, and just right. be cool with them. Be patient, be kind. Um, and that makes all the difference. I've watched a lot of these documentaries about people who have tried to commit suicide and were not successful. And mm. it's crazy how much a smile or a kind word or someone called them on the phone, yeah. like completely changed the trajectory that they were going down. Yeah. And so it doesn't take much. You know, and I think, you know, some recent events in our lives um, make me want to also say, if you have somebody in your life that you know they went through something traumatic and they have a lot of people around them, don't assume that somebody's talking to them. Yeah. Because often that's, everybody's assuming somebody else is doing it. And so no one does it. Yep. So there was, I forget what the study is called, but, what was it called it's uh can't remember but there was a a tragic case uh, in new york city many years ago of a woman that was raped on the streets and as she screamed for help no one came and it was in the middle of like a crowded area and so for years psychologists studied that they're like are all these people just so evil and i forget what it's called but there is um an actual name to it but everyone assumes someone else is going to help yeah so uh, what is it called i can't remember it's gonna bug <laughs> me now know. but anyways but there's an actual thing but they everybody assumes somebody else is going to be the one that goes to get get to help it's not that everybody was evil and no one did it's that they just figured somebody else was going to do that and the same thing is true when it comes to people that are struggling with something that's happened in their life you could be super close with them and their friends, but no one ends up being the one that approaches them and says, hey, yeah, I know what happened sucked. Yes. What could I do? Yep. You know? And I think, I think what you're saying is, is hits the nail on the head. Like it is literally just simple questions yeah. that will lead. I mean, everyone is dying to be seen and heard, like whether we know it or not. And so just saying, Hey man, what's going on? How how's your week been? Whatever, right. and then you know you just go from there off of the questions. Like, you know, how are things going? Yeah. On? How how are things going? Like, mm-hmm. what are you up to? What's blah blah blah? And then sharing your own vulnerabilities will give them permission to want to share with you. So yeah, it's absolutely. really a very simple path, but it just takes a lot of courage to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Simple but hard. Yeah. Exactly. Because people don't want to be open. Yeah. They don't want to be vulnerable. Right. Yeah. Joey, this is great, man. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, man. We're going to have more of these. Yes. we got to pick what the next topic is now. Kratom. No, Kratom. <laughs> <laughs> it's really pushing the Kratom, folks. <laughs> so, yeah, everybody, thanks for watching. Joey and I are going to be doing more stuff together. So sure. definitely comment, you know, give us ideas. What did you want us to do? And uh, we'll have a discussion about it, even if we don't know what we're talking about. I've, right. I've made it this far in life, not knowing what I'm talking about. Hey man, fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. And I'm still trying to make it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right, everybody. Uh, peace. Cool.